Well, let's go ahead and start. And uh, I, I was banned from trying to use my laptop again by my wife. She said it was distracting. So we're going to do up here. But I had to convert it. So all the fonts are going to be wrong. All the animations are going to be wrong. And let that just be a testimony to um, my operating system of choice. But let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to, um, to ask this all-important question. Can we trust the Bible? And I pray that you would help us as we work through now your work of preservation to grow in our trust of you. And I pray that this confirmation would be the kind of confirmation that would um, cause action in us, that we would respond to these truths with change ourselves. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have a story to tell you about um, a girl named Mary Jones. Mary Jones lived in... Uh, 1784 through 1864. She was a little Welsh girl who, at the age of 15, had saved up for some six years to buy a Bible because she didn't own one. She'd heard of a man, but he lived a long way away from her who would sell Bibles. His name was Thomas Charles. And so after six years of fervent saving at 15, Mary Jones walked 26 miles barefoot across the countryside to buy a copy uh, from Thomas Charles. And this is a copy of her Bible right there. You can see Mary Jones at the top. She inspired an entire Bible movement um, that to this day still is spread the world over. People have always valued God's word. But this kind of dedication is one of those little marks in history that you see just how the lengths to which people will go to have a copy of the Bible in their own tongue. Mary Jones is this example for us, and the reason that she throws herself, her whole energies towards buying this Bible is because of God's trustworthiness in the Bible. I want to encourage you today with God's preservation of his word. And we'll go over some of the recap of what we've already done in just a second. This, this dedication to the word is something that Christians have done from the very beginning, whether it was from carefully copying the word to passing it on to teaching it verbally to their children, um, to displaying it in works of art, uh, the truths in the Bible and works of art. People have always been committed to God's word because of its trustworthiness. It's something you can, you can literally stake your life on. Last week, we looked at this commitment God has to his word. If I can get this to click for me. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Sorry, Benjamin, I didn't mean to cut you off there. And I started here for more than just practical reasons, for really theological reasons. We believe God's word ultimately because he spoke it. It's our final authority. It's our ultimate authority. So we can't use some other authority to, to, to be that authority over the word. Let me give you an example if that, makes, if that is unclear to you. Let's say my wife says to me, hey, I'm going to run to the store, and I'm going to pick up every ingredient you need to make cinnamon rolls this week or something. We, we had this conversation earlier. All right? I like to make cinnamon rolls. So let's say she does that. Now, in that moment, you might ask me, do you believe your wife? And I would say, yes, I believe her, right? I believe what she said to me. Now, that's my confirmation in her word has everything to do with her trustworthiness, our, our relationship we've had in the past, but I believe her. When I then see all the ingredients brought to me out of the bags, it's not at that moment that I believe her, right? That's the confirmation that, yes, she is trustworthy. But that itself isn't the moment of belief. The moment of belief is when I ask her and she says, yes, I'll do it. In that same way, what we're saying is that when God says this is his, his self-revelation, when he speaks his word, he confirms his word, we talked about that, the self-authenticating nature of the Bible. 
and God preserves his word, when he says he's going to do this, we believe him. Now what we want to look at is what's in the package when God brings that. What's the preservation? What does it look like when God does exactly what he said he would do? By that way, what we're saying is that this ultimate authority is confirmed. Um, it's attested to by history itself. Today, what we're going to do is talk about that history, God's preservation of his word. And we're actually going to, I stole one more week from Pastor Greg, so next week I'm also going to talk because I didn't feel like I could get all this in today. We're going to look at the history of two things about God's preservation of his word. You might remember last week we stopped saying God said he would preserve his word, but God doesn't give us details exactly how that looks. So what we have to do is look at history and say, well, how did God do what he said he would do? And this is the way that God chose to preserve his word. And in doing so, God brilliantly preserves it in a way that can't be corrupted. It's out of the hands of a single group of people, even. We'll talk then about copying of the Bible and criticism, which sounds way worse than it actually is, all right? Now, these details are important, again, not because they give authority to the Bible, but because they confirm what God already said. They're the things we pull out of the package afterwards that says, I knew God was trustworthy. And in this moment, that's what I want to go over with you. Now, generally speaking, we're going to talk, first of all, about copying. And once again, if you want to take notes, you're welcome to do so. I will also have these on our website afterwards uh, attached to the sermon file, and you can grab those if you'd like to later. Generally speaking, we're going to talk about the people, the tools, and the methods of copying. You might say, copying, what does that mean? Well, what we literally mean is when Paul or when Moses wrote down these words, people would take them and physically copy them. They would take the words and they would copy them and pass them on, and then those would be copied and those would be copied, and this is how God's word spread throughout all the world. So how did this happen? Who did this? Well, first of all, it's scribes. Some of these were professional scribes. Some of them were more casual in nature, but either way, to have the ability to write and read was a, a privilege in that day. So these were educated people for the most part who, generally speaking, were meticulous and careful. In fact, one kind of example of this, and I think this is a bit of an extreme example, but I mention it just to show you. Let me make sure I'm on track here with what I have here. This rabbi says that another rabbi, an older rabbi, said to him, my son, what is your vocation? I told him, I am a scribe. And he said to me, be meticulous in your vocation, because your vocation is a task of heaven. Should you by chance omit or add one letter, you would therefore destroy all the universe. His point is that this was how carefully scribes took themselves. And if you read the New Testament, this kind of shows to be true, doesn't it? Scribes were viewed as kind of this special class of people, and it's because their work was closely tied to giving us God's words. Sometimes you'll hear things like people would throw away an entire manuscript if, uh, if one little letter was off. That's not quite true, but it does illustrate, a, uh, maybe exaggerate a point, that they were careful, they were meticulous, they were trustworthy in that way. And we'll see that as we look at history. An example of a scribe, can anybody think of somebody in the Bible who was a scribe? He has an Old Testament book named after him. It starts with an E, and I heard Joe whisper it. Yes, Joe? Ezra, yeah, that's right. Ezra is an example of a scribe. In Ezra 7, verses 5 and 6, he's called a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And uh, there are many such examples in, in, the, in the Bible. So these people, these scribes, would copy the Bibles that they received, the, the text that they received. Well, just to kind of fill out this a little bit more, what did they copy with? They copied using a variety of writing tools. I've got several of these up here. So they had surfaces like stone and clay and papyrus and parchment and vellum, which is animal skin. We have examples of all these in Scripture. God will say sometimes, write this down on a piece of parchment. We have examples of people carving it into stone. God himself does that exact same thing with his finger, as does Jesus in the ground in John 8. 
they used all these different instruments. We've got like chisels or reed pens, depending on obviously the, the type of um, thing that they were writing down. And here's an example of one of the earliest parchments we have. I didn't write this down. I think this is from the book of Numbers. But since you don't know Hebrew either way, and I can't read this early Hebrew, we're just going to take my word for it. But uh, uh, if, I, if you have questions about that, let me know. I can look it up right afterwards. But this is an example of this kind of parchment that's preserved. Obviously, this is just a little tiny section of parchment. Well, how did they copy? Well, generally, there were two different forms of copying. This is a way of um, how they would do it in practice. First of all, they would take text to text. What I mean by that is they would take, like you might have to be forced to copy something manually. If you didn't have a copy machine, you'd take the piece of paper. You'd take a blank piece of paper. You would look back and forth, and you would copy it. Right? That's, that's one way they would do it. But they would also do it another way, and that is they would, they would do auditory copying. Somebody would read out loud, and then a whole group of scribes would then copy that down and write that down in their own text. Now, can you think of some advantages and disadvantages of both? What would be an advantage of copying it one-to-one? -one? We have a text here and a text here. Can you think of any advantages there? You could check it. You could check spelling, for instance. That's something you can't check just by your ear unless you raise your hand and embarrass yourself in front of the rest of the class, right? <laughs> so you could check it. Good. What is another advantage of copying it with a text next to you? Okay, one person can do it. You don't need to have a group of people. You can do it by yourself, right? What are some disadvantages of that? Can you think of any disadvantages? One copy at a time, right? A really expensive copies, okay? There are some other disadvantages too. Anything, anything else you can think of? Probably a little bit slower, right? Because when you're hearing it, maybe you're a quick writer, and so you go quick, and you're ready, and they read off the next thing, and you don't have time to say, like, hey, could you go back? The whole class is waiting on you. Uh, i got to write this down again, but you can take your time, and... Uh, but that also might mean it's a little bit slower as well. How about auditory copying? Could you think of any advantages of that? Lot. Yeah, you could hear it wrong. All right, that's a disadvantage, right? You could hear the wrong word. An advantage is it's quicker. I think I heard Kirby say. Any, anything else on either side of that? Advantage or disadvantage? <laughs> yep. Sometimes hearing that can be difficult. Now, they would do it where one person's reading and everyone else is copying, but even so, you might miss a word. You might hear a word wrong. Those are things that happen. Also, spelling would be kind of all over the map. Uh, even in, in most modern languages, it's not been but the last just few hundred years where we've actually had like planned on spelling that everyone agrees to. And a lot of that has been the work of Bible translators. Um, in, in German, that was the case. In English, that's been the case where there was spelling all over the map until something that everybody agreed to was written down, and mostly that was the Bible. Um, that was one of the things that God used. So you can see how there's advantages and disadvantages to both of these, and we'll actually see that when we look at what's called manuscripts, which are these copies of the Bible. So this is how God preserved it. Next, let's look at two things about this copying. First of all, the problem, and secondly, the providence. All right, The problem meaning this. Now, don't be shocked by this. This is not a new fact. This has been known the world over. But it may be new to you, and that is that we don't have any original manuscripts. We don't have any original things that, like, the Apostle Paul signed with his hand that we see the ink that he spread out on that parchment. All right? Those are called autographs. We don't have any of those. We also, again, don't be shocked by this. This is not a new fact. We have no two copies that completely agree. Now, usually we have sections, like we'll have... Like in our verbiage, it would be like John 5 through 7 or something like that. They didn't have chapter and verse marks back then. But we don't have any two that agree completely. 
Now, at first, that might seem like a negative, but it's actually a positive, and I'm going to show you why in a second. We don't have any two that completely agree. Do you remember Moses' staff in the wilderness? What did God use that for in the Old Testament originally? What happened when people look at that? It had the snake wrapped around it? What's that? They were healed, right? Does anybody remember what happened to it later on in the Old Testament? People started to worship it. Yeah, it had to be destroyed because people were worshiping it in a wrong manner. It became this symbol of um, almost God himself in a way that was idolatrous. I'm certain that that's exactly what would happen if we had the Apostle Paul's letter to Galatians written out in his hand. What we have instead, by God's providence, is copies of the letter to the Galatians 100 times over all over the known world. This is how God chose to do it. Now what we have to ask is, why would God do it that way? Why would God not just, I mean, could God have preserved like the letter to the Ephesians in its entirety, perfect manuscript where it never corroded in any kind of way? Could God have done that? Of course, but God didn't choose to do that. Remember, we're asking the question, how does God preserve his word? We're asking that because God said he would. Now we have to look back, and this is how God's chosen to do it. So why would he do that? And that's where I want to point to the providence itself. There's two things. Number one, we have... 5,800 plus, and I say plus because we're always adding to this number. They're finding these all over the world, the, the ancient world. They're still preserved in that dry, arid climate. We have over 5,800 New Testament manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts. And uh, we'll get more into that in just, a, in just a second. And secondly, they are spread throughout the ancient world. Now, can you think of any advantages of having this, these two providences? That we have tons and tons of copies and that they're spread everywhere. What are some advantages of that? You can compare them, right? You can look at them next to each other. You can take one from Alexandria, Egypt. You can take one from uh, the Syriac area. Both of those can compare them, spread over time, maybe or spread over space, maybe even spread over time, maybe separated by 100 years, and see that connection. All right, good. Any other advantages you can think of when it comes to them being spread all over the world and being so many copies? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we have what's called families of manuscript for that very reason. You'll have a family of manuscript that all follows this, and nobody else in the world follows that because it started somewhere, and it just got copied down. Now, we'll talk about why that is in a moment, but that's one advantage. You can't have a controlling force that then says, we're going to put this in the Bible, and everyone has to follow along because... You've got to check with everything else. Oh, no, that's not true. It's only in this one little manuscript family that clearly can't be original. Nobody else agrees with it. So in that way, God spreads it everywhere, and his providence protects the, the word. <laughs> it does. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, there are scholars the world over um, from all backgrounds who examine these texts, and you can examine them yourself if you know Greek or Hebrew. Um, I have, and so does every beginning Greek student. Um, my Greek Bible, which I should have brought this morning, I think Pastor Greg's probably got one in there, in the footnotes, it tells you these manuscripts say this word here, all of these say this word here, this family says this word here, here's probably the best choice for this reason. For every single variant, this is not a hidden thing, it's not a secret thing that only a small group of people know. 
This is known the world over. It's open the world over. Scholars from the world over can look at it. There's a way in which God, by not having some little secret special thing that only one manuscript is there and you've got to either believe it or you don't, that would be, I, let me use this phrase, that would be blind faith. That would be jumping and saying, I trust this one thing. What God does instead is spread it out in such a way where you don't have to blindly shut your eyes and jump. You can say, oh, God actually said these words. Now the emphasis is do you trust God or not? Not is this what God said? Does that make sense? If we had one manuscript for Genesis, one for Exodus, and every single one perfectly agreed, the question would be is this what God said? And then do I trust it? But by confirming God's word, by spreading this the world over, now the question moves past is this what God said to do I trust it? Will I listen to God or not? And that way God this problem ends up being a providence. In other words, I could say it like this. We might say, I, I wish we had the originals, and I wish everyone agreed perfectly. But you can see how we'd have no way of confirming what was actually said. Because all it would take is one group of scribes or scholars in the first century to just say, this is what it's going to be, and nobody can differ with us, whether or not that was the case. In this way, God takes this out of people's hands by spreading it through people's hands and so preserving, preserving his word. Let me give you an example of one of the earliest New Testament manuscripts that we have. This is John 18.33, or a section of it. Now, you don't have to necessarily know um, Greek to, to, to benefit from this because I've overlaid the English. All right? So you can see this says the Jew for us, and I'm slightly kind of moving this around a little bit. But here's kind of the full text. All right? He said to him, the Jews, for it is not lawful to put to death anyone. This is to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. So this is... From the actual text we have, and you can see just a little fragment of this. This is called P52. I don't know if I mentioned that. This little tiny fragment. Now, I've got on this next screen an indication of how rare it is to have so many copies and to have them spread everywhere. This is just one scholar's um, assessment of this. Unfortunately, when I move this over to PowerPoint, instead of having this line by line to slowly, progressively show you sections, it just dumps it on the screen. So sorry about that. Um, I didn't know that it was a little bit too late. There you go. All right, so let's look at the top. Nobody is allowed to look below this row, all right? First of all, we have Homer, his Iliad. It was written about 800 BC. And we have about 1,800 manuscripts, which is a lot for the ancient world. But the closest one is about 400 years away from when he originally wrote it. All right, the closest one's about 400 BC. Herodotus, he wrote a bunch of histories. That's what he's known for. We've got 109 of his, and the closest one we have is 1,350 years from his original. Same thing, we've got plays. 100, 200 years. Plato, a huge, hugely important person in the history of philosophy, he, we have 210 copies of one of his famous works here. Closest one is 1,300 years away. Caesar uh, wrote the Gaelic Wars. Again, we have got 251 copies. 950 years is the closest. So you can see that this is normal for ancient literature. This is the kind of copies we have, and this is the, the, the date from when it was written to the first copy we currently have. People don't wonder, do we know what Plato said, right? People aren't super concerned about that. We're like, this is what he said. When it comes to the Greek New Testament, like I already mentioned, we've got 1,538, and this has, I'm sure, been updated since the, the book I'm referencing here. And the closest time gap we have to a, a manuscript, which is that P52, so it's just a fragment. I'm not saying we have an entire copy. It's 50 years. That's how close it is. And they're scattered from there uh, through the next 100 years. Um, again, written in about... Uh, 500 to 1000 AD. Now, one of the other providences of God is that not only do we have this in the original Greek, we've got translations starting from right away, basically, into all the neighboring languages. Uh, I've got here some 18,000, according to this author. The Hebrew Old Testament, 
we've got 42,000 plus manuscripts, and the closest one we've got, again, is 3, 300 to 350 years. Now, one of the providences of God, and maybe you've seen this before, is what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls were a group of scrolls that were discovered by, I believe, a, uh, a boy who was herding sheep or goats. Um, and he threw something, and he heard a crash, and he went and investigated, and inside this cave, uh, and this is the middle 20th century, he finds this huge collection of scrolls. And what they did is they went in there, and scholars looked at them, and they compared them, and what they found is things like, for instance, the entire scroll of Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier than the earliest one we have. And as they compared them, they were nearly absolutely identical. In other words, what it did is it confirmed to us what we thought to be the case with all the other copies we already have is that scribes were meticulous and careful and that we could trust their work. And in this way, and this has happened many times over, God has done this. So instead of isolating his copies to a single strand held by a single group of people that we would have to either trust or not trust, God instead took that out of people's hands by spreading it into people's hands the world over. So what this looks like in practice is when we go to find stuff, we find it all over. We find it up northern. We find it in Mesopotamia. We find it in Israel and Syria. We find it in Egypt. We find it in Babylon. We find it all over because these copies are spread the world over. And unlike today, you can't just fly between these places. These are places separated by days, if not months, of journey, um, difficult, rigorous journey. And by spreading it out like this, God has confirmed his word. So this is how people copied the Bible and the result of that. And you can see how God's providence is at work here, just brilliantly protecting the text from people by giving it to people. This is how God chose to preserve his word. Now, you might still ask, well, how is it that we know what God said? We've got all these copies. What do we do next? That's where that's scary. Yes, Ken. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know, so, um, but I'm sure that they, that is something that is touching everything. Uh, but you bring up the, this point, which is that work, and that work is called criticism, right? So, which is why I said it's not a scary word. It means to look at all these things and compare them. And one of the things that has been true of God's people really from the earliest days is that when new technology comes, believe it or not, it's usually Christians who first take that because we see, like Spurgeon with the, um, his early uh, influences were like the, the, tel the telegraph here immediately is, has his sermons in New York. This is what Christians usually have done, and people already, um, my, the company I work for, Logos, they're doing this exact same thing. How can we use AI to enhance our study? Um, this is happening the world over. Um, and so this has always been the case, so I'm sure there's people thinking that way, but I'm not smart enough to know that. <laughs> But good question. Any other questions, I guess, before we move on about copying? I know this is a very brief overview, and so I'm sure there are little things that I've, I've left undone. But if you have questions, let me know. But now let's move on to this idea of criticism, which is taking, comparing the science of finding what the original text said. Um, the technical thing is called textual criticism, which is the science of recovering the original of a document by examining its remaining copies. What was said based on what we have right now? Well, when we look at these, what have scholars found? 
Again, this is according to, to one author that I read this week. These are the kinds of differences that we're finding in these manuscripts. All right, 77% of them are spelling. All right, what does that tell you? People weren't good at spelling then. People today aren't good at spelling. People are people. This is what happens when people write things down. They can't spell. I'm the first to admit I can't spell. Somebody who's very good at spelling is my wife. I used to pull out the dictionary when we were first married and just read off random words, and she'd spell them perfectly. And I'm like, oh, you were that kid in spelling bee. Anyhow, I can't spell anything, um, but if you need something, ask Megan. She will spell it correctly. All right? 77% of these are spelling. You can imagine, especially if you're listening to words being read and copying them down, and there isn't like a uniform way of spelling all these words, that, that would definitely creep in, and this is what we find in, in, the, in the copies of the Bible. Some 19% are synonyms. Can you think any reason why there'd be synonyms in um, copies of the scripture? Based on what we've talked about. Yeah, Matthew? Okay, going across translations. That would definitely be the case in translations. This is just in copies, though. So you have actual copies of the Greek, and they're picking synonyms. Why would they do that, though? Okay. Yeah. Maybe they're saying, well, this word meant this, but really what it means is that could be the case that they're making some kind of editorial decision to communicate better to their audience. Also, can you think about, would it be copying that you would, like text to text, or would it be listening that you would tend to probably choose synonyms more? Probably listening, right? You're like, I think he said this, and you write it down. And that's what we find a lot as well. All right, another just maybe 6% or so uh, are what they're calling meaningful, but not likely. In other words, these, this makes sense, but it's not likely because it's only found in one little manuscript family. And out of all the changes we have, one author says you can put it all in one piece of paper, front and back. Of all the changes that are meaningful, in other words, they actually make sense in the text, and they're likely. It's possible that this is the word instead of this word. Um, and, and all the copies, it's amazing that this is, uh, this is the carefulness to which people went. Now, when I do this, I decided not to do this today because I didn't think we'd have time and I didn't want to rush it. Um, I've, I mentioned last week that I've done a similar series to this with the teens. I think it was last year. And I did this up at camp maybe four or five years ago with junior hires. What I typically have people do, just to show you how this process works, is I'll have people come up front and sit down and copy this text. All right? Uh, this text, all right, 1 John 1, 1 through 2. I'll just have them copy this word for word, and I'll, I'll have some people usually write it out with the text next to them, and I'll, other people listen to me as I read, and they write it out. And then I take those copies, and without looking at the original, I try to reconstruct 1 John 1, 1 and 2. Now, we are dealing with junior hires, all right, and even ours um, can misspell things, and so can I. I've already said as much, all right? So rather than having you do that, I just want to show you the work of that. So when I did this a year and a half ago, when our teens were not nearly as smart as they are now. Um, and I made them go fast because we only had so much time. Um, here's the result. And I know this is way too small for you to read. But just know that the colors are any differences. So you can see it's that, that, which, from. All right, so there's some differences. Like here's a capital from, and the other ones aren't capital. That's how picky I was being with any differences at all. But you can see how it's, it's fairly easier to tell, like, what are the differences? So this particular person was writing really quickly, and either I couldn't read it, or that's how they wrote beginning or which, multiple times they wrote like that. Well, I know what the word which is. I know what they're saying, and everybody else had it the same way. So you can see how even as you work through this, the only difference here is should this be capitalized or should it not be capitalized? And just with a group of non-scholarly junior hires, 
you can arrive at the original text. So this is all that they're doing in textual criticism. They're taking these copies, they're lining them up and saying, where do they agree, where do they disagree? And these are the kinds of errors we have. To hear, we have no two copies that are identical is scary. This is the reality. It's just people copying, and they'll say things like which instead of which with a, with a WH, right? Um, they'll say stuff like um, like, that's lowercase, or concerning and concerning instead of concerning. But four other people said it the exact same way as the original text did. So you can see how this is what they're doing. I, I've got the next little section here too. Manifest was a hard word to spell. We weren't sure how to do that. That's totally fine, all right? I can't spell anything either. Proclaim just left an I out in that case. You see, how, if I were to add these up, I'd say it's about 77% spelling, right? There's, there's about that much problem with this, and that's what we find all throughout history. Again, just a capitalization problem. Should this be capitalized or not? You can see how it's, it's, it's easy to take these copies and lay them over each other and say, okay, where do they agree and where do they disagree? And these are the kinds of things that scholars have done. Now, you might say that sounds like a horrible life, just be sitting there with ancient texts and copying these things. Well, this is God's kindness to us. You don't have to like it to benefit from it. You can just benefit from the words that we have uh, in these texts. Now, when they go to do this, there are some errors that are typical. We've already talked about spelling and things like that, but let's kind of break that down a little bit more. So I'm going to just break these down quickly. I've got 11 of them, so we'll go fairly quickly. These are the kinds of things you'd expect if people are copying, because people make mistakes. Sometimes a single letter, uh, when it should be written as two, is like written instead of written. Uh, sometimes you'll have something said twice, John 8, 8, bread. Now you can think why that would happen. Like let's say you're copying a text, and you've done this before, haven't you? You're copying, and it goes to the next line, and you repeat that line over again. That's, that's what's happening here. They're looking back and forth, and they repeat a word. Um, you have things like uh, John ate bread, just swapping the letters. All right, This could be like a common problem, hopefully not for a scribe, but it's easy enough to do when you're copying stuff. These are the kinds of things we're finding. John ate, ate bread, where they're smashed together like this. Now, in the early Greek manuscripts, it's all capitalized, and they're all smashed together, uh, which makes it extra confusing. But in the later ones, they'll do this occasionally when they shouldn't have. Or sometimes separating words that should have been put together, like baseball, should have been baseball, but it's clear enough to discern what the, uh, what the idea was. Or sounding similar sounding words, right? John was right instead of John was correct, or right that way, right? This is an easy enough thing to do, especially if you're listening. You can hear that. Uh, John played ball is actually with a T there instead, where maybe they were just, they were tired. It was a long Tuesday. And they're writing down, and they wrote a T instead of an O. Uh, or leaving out a section or a phrase. And you can see how this would happen, especially probably in this case if you're copying with text to text, right? You write a line, you skip a line, and you go to the next line. This is what's happening. These little columns were short, and this is often what would happen. Or sometimes you'll just miss a letter or a word. Now, does anybody know what I'm saying there? John was sad, all right? You don't even need the, you don't need the, uh, the vowels, right? And this is actually how Hebrew is written itself, right? Maybe there's another interpretation of that, but it's still fairly easy to discern even if they leave out multiple vowels in that case. All right, missing a letter or a word. Um, or seeing a vowel as a consonant. Again, this is a little confusing, but I'll, um, I'll mention these misleading in accent. In Hebrew, I already mentioned that they don't have, they essentially don't have vowels. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And so they would just have the capital consonants, more or less. But to mark them out later, because people at that time weren't Hebrew speakers, they would take these little marks that would mention, like, this should be pronounced this way. So they would basically add in the vowels afterwards, and they would add in accent points. Should you emphasize this part of the word or this part of the word for people who aren't native speakers but are copying these things? And sometimes there were mistakes as people copied those or not. I'll give you a quick story. My dad actually has a, a PhD in Old Testament. Um, 
studied Hebrew, studied Aramaic, wrote his dissertation on Daniel, very studied in this, knows Hebrew well to this day. He went to Israel a few years back, and somebody in the group piped up and said, oh, uh, Dr. Pennington, he knows Hebrew. And the guide said, oh, really? And he said, well, I, I know it with like all the diacritical marks and all this stuff. I don't know just like the consonants, which is all they have over there. They don't have all those helpers. And they said, oh, we teach those to like three-year-olds. <laughs> he's like, OK. <laughs> so if you're a native speaker, you don't need these things. But for us mortals, you do, right? You need these little helps to remind how you're supposed to pronounce these things. And that's what sometimes is misleading when you're, when you're writing these over, especially if you're not a native speaker. So just to note that this is how um, manuscripts, what we find when we look at these manuscripts, when we look at the, the actual text itself. Now, generally speaking, when they're looking at these different texts, here's what they're preferring. They're preferring stuff that's older. Why would that be the case, to find an older manuscript? Why would that probably be more likely? Closer to the original, right? That makes sense. They'd also have stuff that's more difficult. Usually, if people are copying it over, they're trying to simplify a thing. They're usually not trying to make it more uh, intense. So this is just generally how people do this, whether or not it's with the Bible, just as textual criticism as a whole. Generally, if it's shorter, these are what we found to be more accurate to it. Often what will happen is as somebody's copying a text, a scribe especially, they'll say, oh, this is referencing another text. Or this is, let me write a little explanatory note. And so that's what they would do. They'd go and they'd write a text. And in the margin, they would say, this means this. Or reference this passage. And then they might draw a little line. Well, you get that text. And you're like, OK, is he saying that belongs in there? Like I should include that text? Or is he explaining that text? So a lot of times what people will do is they say, well, I don't want to leave out God's word. So I'll just add it in the same way. And so what we'll find is this exact thing, where people say these, take these little notes in the margin, and they add them into the text, even if they don't quite make sense in the flow of the sentence, because they don't want to leave out something that was there. Um, we'll find this a decent amount. And sometimes people did leave out a word, and they don't want to throw out the entire manuscript, so they'll add a word and point to it, all right? just like you would do if you were copying something. So that's generally why we find stuff that's shorter is usually more accurate. Uh, also, things that best explain other options, right? Like if you have a synonym or if you have a word that sounds the same, but it's not written the same, this, oh, that best explains what's going on here. Clearly, this is the right word. Or finally, uh, stuff that is found all over the Middle East, not just in one location, all right? We wouldn't want everything from Alexandria to be kind of the copy we end up with in the end, generally speaking. And finally, something that sounds like the author and has no doctrinal bias. So, Paul has a certain style of writing, just like any writers that you like to, to, to read, right? They have their own style. That's why you like them. In the same way, Paul or Moses, they have their own style of speech, their own patterns of speech. And when we find stuff that doesn't match them and that also isn't anywhere else, it's a telltale sign that this is probably an addition. Um, and finally, something that doesn't have doctrinal bias. All right. So if you go to an area of the world where they really, want, really wanted to promote, to promote this error doctrinally, and all of their manuscripts and only their manuscripts have this doctrinal bias in it, that's a good hint to you that this is something that's been added at this point. So this is textual criticism, and we've looked at copying already. Let me just point out a few observations as we close today. It's a few takeaways. First of all, God preserved his word by non-spectacular means. Didn't you say that? People in their dusty little rooms with candles copying stuff. This is how God chose to do it, and this is how God often works, isn't it? God uses normal, everyday things to do something supernatural. He preserves his word in such a way that you can't pin it down to a certain group of people. You can't doubt what's there. We have it in such, uh, such a vast array of copies. Secondly, God protected his word from corruption. And just like he said he would preserve his word, we now look back in history. We open the grocery bag and we say, ah, here's how he did it. He did it by spreading it everywhere. 
so that nobody could corrupt it in some kind of special way by giving us all of these copies that to this day we're still finding. Massive copies of scripture just in the last decade. We found several really, really uh, important ones. But all of this means nothing if we say, wow, we have the words of God. Excellent. I'm so glad we do. I'm so glad that we can trust what's there. Just like God said, just like we believe, now we see the fruit of this. It is true. But if we don't read them, it does us no good. I want to remind us of that as we close today, that we have the very words of God. We really do. We have, we know what he said. There's no doubt in this. And for that reason, we should read them. So I want you to trust the Bible, not intellectually. I want you to trust the Bible personally. It starts with what we talked about last week. The foundation is that God has spoken and self-authenticated his word. With that as our authority, now the question is, how did he do it? Today, what we've done is open the bag and say, I knew God was trustworthy. And I trust that this has been a help to you. Next week, and the part I left out today, what I'd like to do is go over this word canon. Canon is how do we know which books belong in the Bible? Maybe you've heard of rumblings of people saying, well, there are other books that should be here and they aren't. And how do we know that? And that's what I want to go over next week. We'll also likely touch a little bit on translation and how we got the Bible into our English language. I hope you can appreciate just how much of a surface level this is. If you have more questions, I'm more than happy to give you um, answers if I can or point you to resources I can. So let's pray, and then we'll gather back up here in about 10 minutes for worship. God, we're so thankful for your kindness to us and not causing us to have to blindly trust a single manuscript that's been preserved in some special way. This is not the way you chose to preserve your word. If you had chosen that way, it would have required this kind of blind leap, but you haven't done that. Instead, what you've done is litter history and the world over with evidences of your providence. You said you would preserve your word, and now we see the result of that trust in you, that you've done so, and done so in a way that can't be corrupted. It's not in the control of any one person. And even today, we continually find confirmations of what we've seen today, that there are each manuscript uh, testifies to that you have preserved your word just as you said. And so help us read it in Christ's name.